0: People are coming to Christ in record numbers all over the world. I think about mainland China, our communist enemy, Christians, people are being led by the Spirit and coming to Christ. We don't even have a number. In Africa, there are over 700 million Christians now in Africa. Muslims are coming to Christ, not even having heard the gospel, physically experiencing it, but receiving visions of this man called Jesus and acknowledging him as Savior and Lord. There are people coming to Christ all the time, especially after the pandemic. Like right now, people are coming, they are Concerned, they are anxious, they are fearful, and I think they're realizing that there's only one hope, there's only one answer for our sin problem and our brokenness, and His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. If you're online joining us today, perhaps the Spirit of God has moved you to say, hey, I need something in my life, and all this other stuff is not working, and there's something missing or lacking in my life, and we're glad you joined us. We prefer you come in physically because the spirit and the attitude in the room reminds us that there is a spirit of God dwelling among his people. And at the same time, if you're in pajamas and drinking your coffee, and you got your blanket on, and it's a little chilly, and you've uh, decided not to go outside in this cheery, warm, lovely Indiana day, we get that too. And if you're watching from Florida, like my parents are, and uh, it's a nice day out there, hey, it's you know still not in Indiana. We don't have to deal with the red tide or any of that stuff, or 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 hurricanes. We don't have them. Some tornadoes, maybe. But at the same time, we've got to realize that even though there are people coming to Christ all over the world, there are many that are deconverting. Especially in Europe, postmodernism, and in America, people are leaving the faith. Had a young man who grew up in our church just last week, said, hey, I don't need to be reminded of my sin and my shame. I don't need the church on Easter Sunday. And that breaks my heart. And that's happening all too often. And I think a lot of times it's the institutional church that has let let them down, or they have a preconceived notion of what church and God is supposed to be. And so that's why we are addressing that in this sermon series called, I Doubt It. And actually, we kicked it off on Easter Sunday, but I was too much of a coward to actually say that on Easter Sunday. That, that is not a very motivational uh, title, I Doubt It. But that's the reality of where we live today. A lot of times when we're blessed of God, we are wealthy. We have everything that we need. We, we tend to drift away from God because we have it so good and not to take Him seriously. And we see that over and over in the Old Testament. In Israel, but we also see it in Christianity. What once was the the stronghold of Christianity drifts away from the truth. We see in a moment in Scripture, you might be asking, well, Chris, when are you going to get to the Gospels or Scripture today? We see in a moment. Where Jesus had had fed the 5,000, he went away to pray. The disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee by boat. They experienced the winds and the waves. And in the fourth hour of the night, in rough seas, Jesus is walking on the water. Remember the story? And I don't know how, in my cartoon mind, I don't know how that works, where Jesus walks on the water, does he walk up and down waves, or does he just walk through waves and doesn't get wet? Now I would get wet if I were Jesus, and I I think in my cartoon mind that in some way he did that without getting wet, but I don't know. And so here we are. That they see this appar- apparition walking across the Sea of Galilee, and in Matthew 14, 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I think that's extremely faithful. I, I don't think I would have said that. Because if I wasn't sure it was Jesus, I certainly would have said, Hey, I want to get out in the water because, you know, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide. And they might have had a couple miles to go. And if it weren't Jesus, and if I was just seeing things, I would have been end up in the water and having to swim my way to shore. And I'm a pretty good swimmer, and maybe you are too, but two miles is a lot longer than you think swimming. That's what Peter said. He said, Come, so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came Jesus. And and but but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And I'm thinking, wow, you walked on the water? That had to be an unbelievable experience. Jesus immediately reached out his hand as he saw Peter sinking and he took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, if I'd been Peter in that moment, I think I would have said, Hey, everybody else is in the boat. <laughs> but not me. I was faithful enough to get out of the boat. But you're asking me about my doubt. And yes, I walked across water, but I looked at the wind, and I started thinking, and isn't that reality? Have you ever had spiritual doubts, and you weren't asked to walk across water, you weren't asked to get out of the boat, and you still had spiritual doubts? Last week as I preached on Easter, I said this. I said, your doubts don't disqualify your faith. If you have a faith, you're going to experience doubt. And, and, and remember, doubt is not the enemy of faith. It is having faith in spite of doubt. And again, to remind you, doubt is often an invitation to a deeper faith. Doubt is often that invitation that drives our faith deeper. And I want you to know that as your pastor, as your minister, I've had doubts in my life. And at the same time, Jesus could ask me and all of you, why did you doubt Some of my doubts with doubt started when I began to own my own faith, about 12, 13, 14 years old. And as a young person, I had been baptized. I confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. But, but in that process of owning my own faith, I had some doubts. And I went through a year or so, a season of doubt in my freshman year of high school. And, and I came to faith, but it was in the faith community that that occurred. And about the time I went through my sophomore year at Johnson Bible College, as I, I, I received the calling earlier to become a, a minister, a youth pastor, I had some doubt. And and part of it was that the weather was awful in Tennessee. I felt like the beach ministry was calling me in Florida. And if there would have been Johnson Bible College Florida at that time, I would have transferred But instead, I was trying to gather all my friends to do beach ministry with me because it had gotten hard. Bible college wasn't fun anymore. It actually got difficult. The weather was terrible. And I just saw three more years of hard work ahead of me to graduate. And I had some doubts at that time. And periodically, there have been seasons of doubt in ministry. Life got difficult, relationships got hard, things didn't work out, family issues and relationships. I've had doubt. I've had the dark night of the soul where I didn't feel the presence of God. And if you're experiencing any of that, just be encouraged. There is a path through it, and you have to lean into God. And that's why we're talking about that this today, is because it is real, and it's happening all around us. Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? And Jesus asked Peter that same question. Why do you doubt? I think a lot of times it's relationships. Sometimes it's circumstance. Other times it isn't what we expected or hoped for. Sometimes it has to do with death and loss. But when we hear Jesus asking Peter, I think a lot of times I see it as an accusation, but actually it's an invitation to put our faith in our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and for Peter, he was right there. He reached out to him physically and touched him. But for us, by faith, we have to trust in his presence. And the reason why I'm preaching this at this time is because in the United States, in our culture, people are, some people are deconstructing. And, and that's occurred around us all along throughout our whole lives, but today, it is actually a thing, this whole idea of deconstructing, deconstructing. And in fact, if you're kind of a construction-oriented person like I am, why wouldn't you just call it tearing down or demolishing or demolition? And, 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 and this term is kind of confusing because some people use it in a positive way and other people use it in a negative way and you can take it either positively or negatively because it's equivocal, equivocally confusing. So you might ask, what is deconstruction? So I looked it up. I did heavy duty research. I looked into Wikipedia, that faithful agent of, of knowledge. And this is what it said. And I think, I think it's, pretty accurate. Faith deconstruction, also known as deconstructing faith, evangelical deconstruction, the deconstruction movement, there actually is a movement going on, or simply deconstruction is a Christian phenomenon where people unpack, rethink, and examine their belief systems. Now this is where it gets concerning for me. This may lead to dropping one's faith altogether, which would be What? Rejecting Christianity, or may result in a stronger faith. There is no end goal for deconstruction. That's concerning for me. Because the end purpose is not necessarily positive. And so I like another term. Actually, I stole it from somebody else. It's not original with me. And I I call this excavation. Because excavation, I was in Israel a few weeks ago and there were ruins all around and people are excavating things and they're digging things up carefully and examining them and they're keeping the ruins or what is good and they're throwing away what is not good. And excavation is simply this, a sincere examination of your beliefs, seeking to let go of what is untrue so that you can hold on to what is True. An excavation done well can be a form of discipleship. And if you think about your life, I know in my life, there were things I held to be true that weren't true. And other things that were untrue that I was holding on to that I had to compare, compare them to the Word of God and say, hey, I need to get rid of that. That's not, that's not, that's not right. And other things I held on to and cherished. Now, Jesus does this excavation, or if you will, deconstruction in the Sermon on the Mount. Like what I preached in the series, Thy Kingdom Come. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is trading what was said to what is true. Again, in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, Jesus is pretty tough. He has a hard saying for Peter in this moment. In, in, in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, it says, for From the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are not—you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He said, This is of Satan. It's not of God. This is the course that I am to take. But the other course was tempting to Jesus because he wouldn't have to suffer and to die. But it was the only way for our salvation, the only way for forgiveness. Those that were looking for a Messiah in the first century were looking for a conquering king. But instead, he was a suffering servant. They were looking for a Messiah that would take away the Roman rule. And restore the monarchy as they knew under King David. They thought he would achieve victory through conquest. Through military might. And overthrow Rome. But it was a victory through sacrifice. And so in a lot of churches you won't see the cross displayed. In fact we were in a church not long ago. And you had to look. There was only one cross in the worship center. And I just smiled. Somebody pointed that out. And I said, well, we've got hundreds of crosses on every light, on every fixture, on, over the baptistry. You can't hide the cross in this building because it reminds us of what it took for our salvation to, to take away the sin and the shame and the guilt that we carry, our brokenness. And so the point of all this is that we let go of what isn't true and we hold on to what is true. So, so how do you build a belief system built on truth? And it's the same as it's always been. The B-I-B-L-E. Remember that song? The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. That's it. That's how we build our belief system. And and the churches that you grew up in, the traditions that you were surrounded in, how your family teaches the Bible and lived out the Bible, how your community interprets the Bible, sets you up for what you believe today. And it's so important. And, and we bring our own filters into the equation and we come with some things that we have always thought or have always known or always believed to be true through our tradition, through our experiences and our emotions. And, and finally in the Bible, but we've already been determined how we're going to understand the word of God. And we need to be careful about those things because we treat them as truth, and not all of those things are true. So we bring those filters. Tradition, what we've always known, our experiences and emotions, what we've been surrounded by, and also the Bible. We pick up beliefs about God, and some are true, and some are not. And so it's very difficult when you're dealing with a large body like ourselves that, that sometimes I'm preaching something that is true. It's out of the word of God. But it may not match your tradition, your filter, your experience. And yet, if it doesn't align with this, then we need to be honest enough to say, hey, I've always thought this, but this is this. And as I experienced my life in Christ, I have the same experience where I've I made some assumptions that weren't necessarily true. So everything you believe about God may not be true. And that's kind of threatening, isn't it? But that doesn't mean that we reject our faith. What do you do when you discover parts of what you believe are not true? What do you do? You don't have to leave the faith. You let go of what is not true and you hold on to what is true. That may sound pretty simple, but it's not that easy. So how do you go to the Bible and you interpret the Bible for yourself? First of all, you focus on Jesus and I want to take some time here because some of you are trying to take notes and, and this is one of those where you might get behind. You focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. You read through the lens of Jesus' love. You give Jesus the benefit of the doubt that what he's saying is good for you, that what he's saying delivers you. It, 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 it protects you from harm. You don't believe what isn't true and you pursue what is true. And that's a lot to say because in our culture today, there's a war going on and they're, they're telling you that what is sin is okay and good. And, and the thing is when we label things that aren't good for us and, and we don't call them sin and we say, Oh, we're just accepting and we're embracing and we're including Sin still has the same impact and still has the same consequences. Sin is harmful and it destroys and it leads to death. So don't believe what isn't true. Pursue what is true. And our goal is, to be, is not to be right. Our goal is to be loving. I grew up in a church where I was taught to be right, but I wasn't taught to be very loving. And our goal is to be gracious and compassionate and loving first. We still need to strive for rightness, but only through the Word of God. Now, the question then becomes, have you ever considered leaving the faith? Or or do you know someone who is leaving the faith? And that's concerning. That breaks our heart. When people leave the faith, should cause us to sin or not sin to, should cause us to pray and to be concerned and, and and it may come to some you know conversations of hey what's going on and they're checking it all when they've held on to something that they they thought was true that really isn't true about Christianity or not about about God. And that's what I find a lot of times, that they have a misconception or a misunderstanding and they're holding on to something that isn't true, that God never promised. You know, I believe Peter and the disciples doubted Jesus too, don't you? We know that. A few weeks ago I was at this place, it was where Peter... uh, Uh, had breakfast on the beach with Jesus. It was a post-resurrection event. It was after Jesus rose from the grave, and and actually it was what Dave was talking about in communion today. He was talking about, you know, Peter and the disciples actually going back to fishing. And like the first time they went fishing with Jesus, they didn't catch anything all night. In fact, I think Jesus delivered them from, from a profession that they would never be good at. They weren't good fishermen. They never caught any fish without Jesus, according to the Bible. And so, so that night, they hadn't caught any fish, and, and Jesus said, Hey, cast your nets out again. And they brought in this big catch, and Peter kind of recognized this this person on the beach and that maybe it was Jesus and he jumped out of the boat and he swam to Jesus and there Jesus was and he had this breakfast that he was making with fish and bread and I was at this location every, every place that is sacred in Israel they built a Catholic church over it it kind of loses the picturesque thing that goes on in your mind, but this is the spot, and in fact, this next flight is going to be of of the view and this you know to kind of commemorate you know Jesus at the beach with with the fishermen that had gone back to what they knew, what they were familiar with, what they were comfortable with and Jesus takes this moment and and by the way. Uh, This is what the fish probably looked like. They probably had french fries with their fish. (laughs) This is a fried fish. They probably grilled it. This is actually St. Peter's fish. It's a relative of tilapia. And actually, I ate this fish. It's no longer like that anymore. Had to debone it. And that's how they ate their breakfast with Jesus on the beach. But Jesus had a purpose of meeting them. At that post-resurrection event. And it's John 21, 15 through 17. He was restoring Peter. Because Peter had some doubts. He denied Jesus three times. Peter had to be dealing with some shame and some guilt like we do. When we fail the Lord and when we doubt. And here's here's what happened. After they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to to him, Feed my lambs. And, And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, "Tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? You know, that hurt Peter. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. He was saying, You know, Peter, I have a purpose and I have a plan. No more guilt, no more shame. I love you. Feed my sheep. Take care of the flock, the kingdom of God that is coming. You see, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus restored Jesus three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he says that to you. His grace is sufficient. His compassion is un- unending. His forgiveness is available to all. His blood is enough to cover all, all of our sins. Those that we have sinned in the past. Those that we are sinning against him in the present. And all, everything in the future. He loves you and wants to restore you. He wants to use you for his kingdom. Do you remember who, who did God choose to preach on Pentecost the first day of the church? Who did, he, who did he use? Who was the loudest spokesperson? It was Peter that preached the gospel. 3,000 responded. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. A broken man, guilty and full of shame, was forgiven, received grace and compassion for the Lord Jesus Christ, was restored three times, and when the Spirit came on, he preached the gospel and people responded. God used him. And if you'll use him, he will use you. Just remember... Doubt isn't the enemy of the faith. Doubt is often an invitation to a growing faith. You know, Peter, 25 years later, probably 25 to 30 years later, he writes in the only book, First and 2 Peter, but in 1 Peter, he writes this in, in, in chapter 2, verse 25. He says, For you were straying like sheep. He, he was talking about himself. He had strayed. Have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. That's what Jesus calls us to do to return to Him, the shepherd, to allow Him to oversee our souls. Will you allow Him to do that for you today? Will you please stand as I pray? Eternal God and Father, we are grateful that you are a shepherd and a savior that would lay down his life for his sheep. That we would be used of you that our shame, our guilt, our sin would be taken away. Your forgiveness, your grace, your compassion would rule in our lives. That your spirit would reign. Father, we pray that you would use your spirit and your word to bring us to faith in you. Father, not to tear it down, but to build it up and to grow deeper and stronger that your light and your love would shine through us. Father, just now we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.